Hello, everyone. We're back here for another episode of the Beyond the Whistle podcast. I'm Dylan Pescatore, joined today with our usual Ian Nicholas as my co-host. And today we have a very special guest. It's the Canucks radio uh, play-by-play announcer, Brandon Bachelor. Brandon, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. So our first question that we have to ask everyone, sadly, is how you doing there in this quarantine? I know that you've uh, engaged in some cooking during this uh, time off. So what's going on? Yeah, it's been uh, quiet. Uh, I'm certainly very lucky that uh, I haven't been impacted and, and my wife, neither of us have been impacted to the same degree as many other people, whether it's through contracting COVID or losing their jobs or things like that. So I'm, I'm very lucky in that regard, but otherwise just spending some quality time at home. You're right. I've been cooking and baking a little bit more than I would, uh, just cause we don't really have any hockey to be talking about or analyzing right now and, uh, eagerly anticipating the return of the NHL in the summer here. Absolutely. I mean, we're grasping every report we can get. So the first question I want to start off, we always start with the childhood. And I know that you grew up in Vancouver as a Canucks fan. So how is it uh, as a Canucks fan? You know, they weren't too good when you were a kid, but were you still a fan? And what was one of your favorite players? Yeah, so for the most part, they weren't uh, very good when I was younger. But when I really fell in love with them was in 1994. I was five years old so I was just sort of really getting into hockey intensely and that year they went on a, a run to the Stanley Cup final and lost to the New York Rangers in game seven so you know I was all in with the Canucks from that point on and, and Pavel Bure was my guy when I was young that you know super fast skater very skilled scored a lot of goals and you know even now you look back at video of him and he, it feels like he would have been a player that would have translated well to the modern game. So uh, that was really when I, when I fell in love with the Canucks and, and Pavel Bure was my, my first player that, that I would say was my favorite player for sure. So if you had favorite players in hockey growing up, did you have any sports broadcasting idols in Canada or broadcasters that do games in the U.S. that you were a big fan of and why did you fall in love with them? Yeah, so we're very lucky in Vancouver that there's a really good history of very strong hockey play-by-play -play announcers. The first was Jim Robson, who was the voice of the Canucks when they came into the NHL in 1970. And, and really, he's had an impact on a ton of people that have gone on to broadcast games for the Canucks, um, whether it's Jim Hewson, who now does games nationally on Sportsnet here. Uh, is on the number one crew for Sportsnet Hockey Night in Canada. John Shorthouse, who does the TV broadcast for the Canucks now, both of those guys would tell you that Jim Robson had a huge impact yeah. on them, and, and Jim's had an impact on me as well. He was closer to retirement by the time that I was paying attention to the Canucks, but uh, was an excellent play-by-play -play broadcaster. And then those other guys I mentioned, Jim Hewson, John Shorthouse, Rick Ball also used to call Canuck games on the radio. All of those guys were absolutely excellent play-by-play -play broadcasters and, and guys to look up to and, and sort of, you know, mold your craft after, I guess, to a, to a certain extent once I was actually getting into um, a point where I wanted to pursue sports broadcasting. But I know John Shorthouse has said this all the time of following the Canucks when he was younger. He's about 20 years older than I am. And he said that, you know, when the Canucks came into the league, they were a bad team and they were a bad team for a long time. But one thing they did have that was good was a great play-by-play -play broadcaster. And so listening to the games and watching the games was much more enjoyable, even though the team wasn't very good because of that. And so even, you know, through large stretches of my childhood, the Canucks weren't very good. Their broadcasters were always excellent. And, and that's something that had an impact on me and probably, you know, directly, you know, allowed me to, to go into this career path or inspired me to go uh, along this route. 
That's great. We all know the stereotype with people from Canada that they love hockey and that's the number one sport. But were there any other sports that you played growing up or maybe even looked into broadcasting? Yeah, I, uh, I played soccer a little bit growing up. I played basketball, uh, dabbled in rugby a little bit. So I, I did play a few sports and I have done soccer play by play as well. So uh, mm-hmm. that is something I, I, I called a few games for the Vancouver Whitecaps in Major League Soccer and uh, their USL affiliate when it was still locally here in Vancouver. So um, yeah, I, I've had been impacted by a v- variety of different sports growing up and, and being a fan of them. But you're right, I'm a young Canadian kid. Hockey was always number one for me. So you went to Ryerson University for a year, which is one of the better broadcasting schools in Canada before transferring to BCIT and getting a two-year degree there. Did you know when you hit the college level that this is what you wanted to do professionally? Or when was the moment? Was it high school? Were you a young kid when you were like, this is something I think I can do for the rest of my life? Well, so I don't think I knew that it was something I wanted to do when I was a young kid, but I was doing all the things that would lead me towards doing it. So I used to like call the play-by-play of my road hockey games, call the play-by-play while I was playing the NHL video game. I'd sometimes mute the TV and call the play-by-play. And at that point it was just like, yeah, this is fun to do. I'm like a little kid playing pretend that I'm a broadcaster. And it never really sort of occurred to me at that point that, Hey, maybe that's something I could actually do one day. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then when I was coming through high school and you know, you get into the last couple of years of high school and they're talking to you about, you know, you've got to be thinking about where you want to go to school and what career paths you want to do. And, and at that point, it sort of dawned on me that, hey, I've always had fun talking about hockey and talking about sports. If I could go into a line of work where I'd get paid to do that, that would be pretty awesome. So, yeah, I, I applied and was accepted to Ryerson University, which um, is in Toronto. So it's more in, in central eastern Canada. And I've grown up in Vancouver, which is right on the West Coast. So I moved across the country for that first year uh, to go to Ryerson University. and the one thing I realized right away is that a lot of the con I was, you know, you start to make contacts in the industry, being in that city and and being exposed to, you know, media professionals through your program. And I started to realize that, okay, I'm building contacts here in Toronto, but that probably means when I graduate, I'm going to have to continue to live here and and try and find a job here. And it had always been my plan to try and come back to Vancouver and get into play by play and eventually call Canuck games. Mm -hmm. So at that point I, I chose to go to BCIT which is a, it's a trade school. So it's much more applied work towards exactly what you want to do. So um, it's not a a bachelor's degree. It's a diploma of technology, they call it. But the one thing that was a positive was it was only a two-year program, whereas the Ryerson program was a four-year journalism degree. So I left after the first year of Ryerson, cut a year off my schooling and was able to get into the industry a year earlier. So um, that was a a large part of the decision-making process there. And um, and certainly it, it's turned out pretty well. So I'm, I'm happy. Seems like it. Nice. Something that we learned from a lot of announcers that we interview is that they worked behind the scenes before they got in front of it. And the story that I heard from our colleague, Jake Baston's interview with you on the shot in a gold podcast, I'll give him a shout out is that you work behind the scenes on a lot of radio stations and your big break was because you got hired on a new year's day, uh, Christmas Eve and new year's Eve uh, shift for that being just the safety guy. How did that work out? Yeah, so I I was starting at BCIT, and um, one of our professors had talked about that when he was going through the program, he got a foot in the door to do some work at one of the local radio stations while he was still going to school. So I thought, oh, that's a good idea, you know, get in the building, you know, do some behind-the-scenes work, get to know people, make some contacts. Um, So I just reached out to the local, the only local sports radio station at the time was Team 1040, which is now TSN Radio here in Vancouver. 
And uh, so I reached out to them and just said, hey, you know, if, if you have like any openings for an intern to come in and learn, I'd love to you know, come in. And so I initially just went in and was job shadowing the producer of their evening sports talk show just to sort of see how things work behind the scenes. And, you know, I, I guess, learn how the sausage is made for lack of a better term in terms of, yeah. you know, how things actually get put together so that they go on the air and radio. Uh, and so because I'd shown some interest and, um, you know, really some enthusiasm to be around, that year, they, they hired someone, and this is a job that doesn't even exist anymore, but they needed somebody to be in the building in the middle of the night over Christmas and New Year's so that if something went wrong with one of the radio stations or they went off the air or there was a power outage or, or anything, that there was someone there at the station that could help fix any issues there were. Uh, so that was my break. My first job in radio was working 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. on Christmas Eve, just wow. sitting in a building that had four radio stations in it. Uh, making sure that that they got on the air, but you know that that's that's a story I tell you know aspiring broadcasters all the time that you know you might think wow he's you know calling Canuck games now that's a glamorous job yeah but there was you know there was work that, to get there and and I had to do some things behind the scenes that you wouldn't necessarily expect but uh, it, it was important for me at that point to get my foot in the door and build some relationships that you know directly helped my career move forward in in the following years. I mean, you can't go straight from, you know, high school, college to the pros and you have to do your time and do things that necessarily you aren't comfortable with or haven't done before. And you filled in that role great. And it translated, obviously, to your Canucks job in 2017. But before you got there, you'd spent four years with the Vancouver Giants in the WHL, also known as the Juniors. So what was that experience like? Still near your hometown or in your hometown of Vancouver. Did you enjoy that experience? What was that like? And did it make you better in what you are doing today? What are some of the biggest things you need to improve, I guess is what I'm saying, heading into your job in the Giants? And how do you feel you improved during your time there? Well, the main thing was, you know, experience calling play-by-play -play in hockey, right? So at that point, I did one season with a junior A team, so a lower level of junior hockey called the Surrey Eagles locally. Um, and you know, that was great experience for me. I didn't have a color commentator that season. So I really, that was my first opportunity to do play by play. That was an official job. It wasn't, you know, me doing it for the campus radio station at BCIT or something like that. So, you know, I, I called a lot of games that year. I learned a lot. Yeah. Uh, and, and that sort of vaulted me into a spot where the Vancouver Giants hired me. And again, I talk about you know, networking and building relationships, the Vancouver Giants games were broadcasted on TSN radio, where I had done off-air work in the past. And by that point, I was doing mm -hmm. some on-air sports update work for them. So the Giants, you know, needed a new play-by-play -play broadcaster. I applied and I had the program director at the radio station where their games were broadcasted on as my number one reference because I worked there before. So again, those, those things tie together well that uh, the Giants hired me. And yeah, that, you know, it was a great four years. I did uh, four years of play-by-play, -play, three years, uh, the latter three years, I was the media relations director as well. So you just learn the value of work ethic, really, that uh, when you work for a junior hockey team, like the office staff isn't very big. So you know, I was the play-by-play -play guy. I wrote press releases. I ran the social media. I ran the website. I painted the dressing room one summer because there wasn't a lot of other people there to do. Like when you work for a junior hockey team, you do whatever is asked of you because, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of people there that are not a lot of people there. So everybody has to pitch in and help out regardless of what it might be. So I definitely learned the value of hard work. And then, yeah, just improving my broadcast with every single game, getting a, a you know, a lot of repetition, you know, as you rightly point out, uh, people don't jump from, you know, calling a lower level of hockey 
right to the NHL, you need to have a lot of experience. And, you know, I think I had something like 400 games, 500 games under my belt by the time I was done with the Vancouver Giants through all of that time. So, you know, that that's the best way to get better as a broadcaster is to continue to to work through things and try to improve on your call every single game. And, and so that was the biggest thing for me is by the time I had the opportunity to make uh, what even in hockey terms is a, a relatively big jump from juniors to the national hockey league right away. I had a lot of experience and a lot of games under my belt to help me do that. That's mm-hmm. insane to hear that you have 400, 500 games before you even get to the NHL. I mean, this was our first year broadcasting hockey at our high school. I got 25 games under my belt. I got a long way to go. But something I wanted to touch on, keeping going with the Giants, is that hockey is considered the hardest sport to do play-by-play with. And for me, I could attest to that. Uh, What was something that you just learned right off the bat? What is something that you had to improve? Was it during play? Was it your goal calls? Was it just transitioning? Because you didn't have a color guy. You had to just fill that air. Yeah. So I actually disagree with people that think hockey is hard to call, and here's why. Mm -hmm. So much stuff happens, and so much is happening all the time that you don't have to really fill a lot. You just have to describe what you're seeing. Like if you're calling baseball, there are long pauses where the pitcher is getting set to throw the pitch. And you as a broadcaster, you know, you can certainly let stuff breathe, but there's a lot more dead air that you have to find a way to fill. Whereas hockey, so much is happening that you spend all the time describing what you're seeing. And there's not a lot of color that you have to do around that. But you're right. No, that first year where I didn't have a, a color man, I essentially got into the mindset and, you know, this is something that, that set me up well for the future. Cause you know, there were a few times with the Vancouver giants where the color guy couldn't make it or whatever. And I would have to call games by myself that you essentially get into the mindset that you are the play by play guy. And then you also are the color guy, but they're like two different people. So you almost have a conversation with yourself where you describe the play and then you go back and try and analyze it afterwards. So you've described, what's happened. So that was something I learned from, from broadcasting on my own. Um, the one thing I always talk to young broadcasters about if they want to get into play-by-play for hockey is accurately describing where the puck is on the ice and, and trying to provide as much detail as possible without getting caught up in a ton of words. So, you know, an example I use all the time with the Canucks, if I'm, I'm talking to young broadcasters, like if I say to you, Besser passes to Pedersen and he scores, You can't picture that in your mind as much. But if I say Besser has it on the right wing boards, plays it back to the point, Pedersen tees up a slap shot and scores, he fired it over the glove of the goaltender, suddenly you have a picture in your mind. So that's the biggest difference in in terms of developing your play-by-play is finding a way to paint that picture so that someone that's listening, uh, maybe not even watching, and certainly that's what I deal with in radio play-by-play especially, that they can picture exactly what happened. And, you know, one of the greatest compliments I've ever received as a broadcaster is I went and talked to some students and one of them said, yeah, I was driving in the car when this goal happened in a game last week. And then I got home and I saw the highlight and it was exactly how I had imagined it. And like that is as a radio broadcaster, that's what you're striving for. So that's the number one thing that I think young broadcasters that want to be hockey play-by-play guys and good hockey play-by-play guys need to focus on and you know that's something that I learned and and grew out in my call uh, as the years went along. I mean people don't really understand that about radio broadcasting is you are the eyes of the listener and you don't have enough time to really get into those personal stories about players or coaches or go off on these not tangents but you have to stick to the game at hand and as you also mentioned you have so much game to talk about there's so much action that you do have a lot to talk about during Mm -hmm. the game. 
So you mentioned during your childhood that the Canucks weren't a terrific team, but you've also mentioned that this past season was one of your most fun in hockey because the Canucks are a playoff team and an exciting team to cover. To cover. So how exciting was it for you this season to cover a team that you knew in night in and night out was going to give you a great show? Did it change your mindset heading into the game? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, you know, it's the same for, for anybody that covers a sports team or for fans that follow a sports team. You're more invested and you're more excited when the team is better and they're winning games. And, you know, certainly that's something uh, that, that was very exciting about this past season and hopefully will be going into the play-in round and, and the playoffs that we're going to see in the summer. Uh, with this club that, you know, they haven't been a playoff team for a number of years. And then on top of that, uh, the Vancouver Giants for almost the entirety that I worked for them were not a very good team either. They made the playoffs once in my first year there and they were swept in four games in the first round. So if I get a chance to broadcast a Canucks playoff win, it will be the first playoff win that I have broadcasted for a team that I've covered since I worked in the BCHL with the Surrey Eagles in 2013. So Um, but but that said you know I think covering bad teams made me a better broadcaster because you have to find ways to make the game interesting and exciting for people even if the team that you're covering isn't going to make the playoffs or is losing six nothing or whatever it might be so um, so all of that was good and it, it has helped me but at the same time yeah it's it's way more exciting to cover a winning team that has exciting young players like the Canucks do right now. And then you also know that um, what you're doing is more impactful to people because there's more people listening. There's more people paying attention and there's more people that are really emotionally invested in how the team's doing. So yeah, it's been one of, one of the most enjoyable years I've had in hockey thus far, other than of course, the fact that the season was cut short and that uh, COVID-19 kind of threw a wrench into all of these plans. But uh, I'm also incredibly excited to, to call games coming up here in the summer when they get the play-in rounds underway. Yeah. We spoke with the LA Kings TV uh, announcer, Alex Faust, a few weeks ago. And he gave us a great insight. You know, he goes into the locker room and he's talking with players, trying to get those any itty-bitty piece of information. What's your initiative or just preparation when going to talk to players or going to talk with the coaches and Travis Green? Yeah, so I'm, I'm lucky that um, I do a one-on-one interview with Travis Green before every game that airs. Mm. Uh, and so I get a chance to talk with him about things off the air and then we record the interview as well. So that's, that's an opportunity to, to get some insight onto, you know, decisions that the team might be making or, or ways they're trying to play, um, where, you know, a lot of the times, some of the information I'll get will be off the record where, you know, I'm making this decision because of this. And that's not something I can report on the air, but you can use it to color the way you describe things that are happening so yeah. um yeah th- those are important conversations to have to to try and learn things about you know if there was like like if talking to players for example you know why do you have this curve on your stick what is the reasoning that that you know you want want the curve to be that way is it so that you can do this and then if it comes up in a game like he if he says oh i have the curve this way because it allows me to get a better angle on a wrist shot then when he scores on a wrist shot suddenly you have that background where you can talk about, yeah, you know, he, he has this curve specifically for situations like this and it worked out, but um, that's something that's important too. And I'll be honest, it's something that I'm getting better at is, is building those relationships with players and with staff around the team that you cover so that, um, you know, you, you get those little bits of information that allow you to improve your broadcast that much more. 
Yeah, those pregame interviews, we usually ask every broadcaster we talk to about them. And, you know, there are some things that you can say and there are other things that you can't say, but they also do give you more insight on how the team functions as a whole, which mm -hmm. is still extremely valuable, especially for a radio broadcast. Now, you mentioned in the past that sometimes you haven't had color commentators and you've had to act as both. But when you're doing these radio broadcasts, how hard is it or how much pregame preparation do you do with your color analysts to somewhat feed them storylines during the game so that you can cue them up in a sense that, you know, you aren't going to have a lot of time to cue up your color analysts in the game because hockey, that's just not the nature of the sport. Yeah. So Corey Hirsch is my color analyst on Sportsnet 650. He's a former NHL goaltender, played for the Canucks. Yeah. Uh, I used to watch him growing up. He probably <laughs> wouldn't like me saying that because it makes him sound really old. But, uh, you know, I was a kid when he was playing for the team. Uh, and, and we meet uh, on most game days, almost every game day. And we sit down in the morning at the morning skate or in the early afternoon. And we come up with the main storylines that we want to focus on that night in the game. And, you know, sometimes those are running storylines that we've been tracking throughout the year, or sometimes they're specific to a decision that's being made with the lineup that night or whether the team is losing games or winning games. But that's something we sit down on almost every game day and plan out, okay, what are the main storylines that we need to be focusing on going into this game? Because as much as, you know, I, I boil it down to that my job is to describe the play, we're also telling a story, right? And it's, it's a long story. It's a story of an 82 game season and hopefully playoffs after that. And each game is a new chapter. So there are, you know, running storylines that we have to focus on and, and, and things that we want to address. It, it can't just be describing the play and not providing any context for it. So um, we'll meet and talk about those topics. Uh, oftentimes if they revolve around a certain player, then either Corey is the color guy or myself will sit down and talk with that player in the dressing room after the morning skate, just to get some insight on, you know, so-and-so is coming back from an injury. How are they feeling uh, coming off the injury? What are the things they want to focus on to get back up to speed or, or whatever mm -hmm. it might be. Uh, and then in the game, you know, we've called games for three years together now. So we've built uh, a, a solid chemistry where, um, you know, the, obviously on radio, especially the priority has to be describing the play because people can't see it on television. You can be a lot more conversational and you can be having a back and forth about something while the play is going because the fans can see what's happening. Um, so for us, it's it's I, I wouldn't say it's a formula, but Corey knows when I'm going to let him in to talk and when it's time that I need to be describing the play. So, um, you know, if generally speaking, stoppages of play are Corey's time to talk where, you know, I'll say, oh, goaltender covers it up, five minutes left in the first period, Canucks lead one nothing, And then he can analyze what's ever just happened or bring up one of those storylines if it's pertinent to the game. In terms of in the actual play, generally speaking, I call the game, and then there will be instances where I'll let Corey in to provide analysis if there's time for it. So if a defenseman goes behind his own net and he's setting up a breakout and his line mates are changing, we know that he's probably going to stand there for 10 seconds. And so that's usually an opportunity where I can get out and Corey gets in for about 10 seconds, but then he also knows that he's got to finish by the time something is happening again so that I can get right back to it because, you know, there have been times and this happens to every broadcaster. It's not, you know, something specific with Corey and I, where we're in a stoppage of play, he's describing something, but they score a goal right off the face off and, and it has to be like, Oh, and they score and we don't have time to describe it, and then you have to build that out afterwards. So that happens as part of it, but it's something we try to avoid, if at all possible. 
Something that really interests me is the preparation for hockey broadcast. Everyone has their own uh, board and likes to describe it in their own way. And we go between stats and storylines. What's your preparation like? Yeah, it's uh, so we do the storylines that we talk about. And then I, I do a fair bit of statistical prep as well. And, you know, I would say anywhere between two and four hours of prep per game, depending on the situation earlier in the season when it's the first time the Canucks are playing a team, I will do a lot more preparation. And then later in the season, when it's like the fourth time they're playing that team, I've already done three games worth of preparation for that. But you just have to update some of that information uh, and, and you don't necessarily have to build it out from scratch like I would uh, at the, the start of the year. Um, but yeah, I focus on stats. And also I'm someone who, like there are some great broadcasters out there who have an ability to have stats in their head and just throw them out and they know them off by heart. I've never worked that way. So I have, I guess it's three or four different sheets with stats that I have taped to the desk in front of me as I'm calling the game so that if a player scores a goal and it's a milestone, like it's his hundredth career goal or something like that, it's on the piece of paper in front of me so that I can immediately look at it down and go, Patterson scores his 100th goal in the NHL. And you add, add those things to it. So those are the sorts of things I track, um, you know, whether players are hot and cold. So guys on a five game point streak or a guy hasn't scored in 20 games. Those are a lot of the things. And then, you know, from talking to players, you get, you know, interesting backstories like, you know, for example, the teams have the bye week in the middle of the week. So you could be talking about a player and be like, by the way, you know, Troy Stetcher and his girlfriend got away to Palm Springs during the bye week. And he said that he had a really good time or something like that. Just more human interest stuff. So I try to vary my prep. I don't want it to be all statistical uh, in nature because you can bore people if you mention too many numbers in a broadcast. Um, but you want to add some color, too, so that people listening can feel like they can connect with the players on a human level, too. I mean, this isn't more of a, a prep question, but it is a question since you are you love the game of hockey and you call it. Obviously, there are a lot of young, exciting players on the Canucks right now, and I know you can't really branch into your love of a player in the middle of a broadcast, but who are some guys that when they come into town and they play the Canucks and they score a goal or they make a play, you're like, this guy is so fun to watch. He's so fun. Who are some of the guys in the league, some of the bright young stars, that you love just seeing them on the ice and you love calling games when they're on the floor? Yeah, obviously Connor McDavID is yeah. right at the top of that list where like he he is he reminds me of Pavel Bure in many ways because what would always happen with Pavel Bure, and I can remember this from being at games as a kid, is he would pick up the pocket his own blue line and suddenly the crowd would go, ooh, like you know something's about to happen because he's got that speed and he's got that skill. And it's the same with Connor McDavid. When he's got the puck with time and space you know he's going to make something exciting happen. And as a broadcaster, you have to be really on it because he's such a quick player that sometimes he can create something out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, that's something that I've, I've learned, especially when calling uh, Canuck Euler games, is that Connor McDavid is a guy, like, when he's got the puck, there's no time for chatting about anything other than what's happening with the game because there could be a goal at any moment. Uh, Nathan McKinnon is a lock like that with the Colorado Avalanche as well, really powerful skater, uh, very, very, you know, a talented offensive player, obviously. And, and that whole avalanche team is a great team. So th those are the two main guys that, um, that, that really come to mind. The one, you know, moment I had where, you know, one of, one of the biggest challenges for me making the jump from the Western Hockey League to the NHL was the speed of the game. Mm -hmm. And certainly players that skate quickly like those guys do, 
uh, present a challenge in terms of being up to speed with what's happening in the play as you're calling it. Um, but the one moment in my first season where I was like, wow, this is really fast, was the Pittsburgh Penguins came to town and they got a power play. And, you know, their power oh, play. Man. Chris Letang. Sidney Crosby, Evgeny Malkin, Phil Kessel at the time. And those guys just whip the puck around where it's literally like ping pong, bing, bang, bong. Like it's all over the zone. Kessel to Crosby to Malkin, back to Latang, then to Kessel to Crosby. And, and like you can't even speak fast enough. And they scored a goal. And I think I was like a player and a half behind where the puck was. Like I said, Crosby had it. And by the time I was saying Crosby had it, he passed it to Malkin who had passed it to Kessel who had scored. And so, you know, that's something that's challenging as a broadcaster, but also you sit back and you're like, wow, these guys are good. And, and that obviously not all of them are there together in Pittsburgh anymore, but that was certainly a group of players that at that time uh, were incredibly effective in, in the way they moved the puck. That's actually a funny story because I remember I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Devils fan myself back in 2012 when we were relevant in uh, the Eastern Conference final game in game six when we beat the Rangers. That was a goal, the second goal, I'm pretty sure. I remember Doc Emmer calling it. He was a, he was a player with Pat, or a, a few behind because he was just going bang behind the net, back to point to the corner. And that's a funny story. But the question that I had to have, and I know your answer is not going to be a Prudential Center, but what's the arena that you just love going to, either in the Eastern or Western Conference? Yeah, uh, Madison Square Garden, obviously, because of the history there and also just selfishly, selfishly our broadcast vantage point is really good there. Like, we're low to the ice, but we're high up, above, like right above it. So you're on top of the play. You can see a lot of the way things are developing. Uh, Prudential Center is not on my list, unfortunately. Our booth I don't is think it's really, on anyone's list. really high up, so you're very far away from the ice. Um, so, so that's not a lot of fun. Edmonton's like that. It's a beautiful new building, but someone forgot that the broadcast booth needs to be on the same planet as the ice. So you're like miles and miles away. Uh, but MSG is great. Uh, I really like the Bell Center in Montreal. You know, there's such a, a storied history around the Montreal Canadiens, even though that building isn't, you know, the old Montreal Forum, but you walk into that building and there's a feel like, okay, you're in a place where hockey really really matters to these people and especially you can like I can tell while calling the game the fans in Montreal are into the game like almost nowhere else in the league there are more oohs and ahs at more subtle things in the game than anywhere else uh, so that's one I enjoy and then you know what more recently on that list is Vegas because they've got a great atmosphere that they've created in their arena it's by far the loudest building in the NHL they really blast the music and their fans get into it and, you know, when you, when you go to a game in Vegas, it doesn't feel like going to a hockey game really anywhere else. It's, it's kind of like, you know, it's got that Vegas feel around it where there's some glitz and some glamour. And it's a hockey game, but they also do a lot of great things uh, built around the game to make it very entertaining for the fans. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those are the three places that really jump to mind right away as being some of my favorite buildings to call games in. And then I had a few Canucks-specific questions before we head out. I know that they're facing the Minnesota Wild in a best-of-five in their play-in series. What's one player this year that really just stood out to you and came up out of really nowhere? Quinn Hughes, for sure. And people expected him to be, you know, a, a great defenseman for this team. I'm not sure if people expected him to have the impact that he's had in his rookie year. Uh, he's been phenomenal. He's changed the complexion of their back end. He's one of the most confident players with the puck that I've ever seen. And I've said this on the air before, like I already believe that he is set up to be the best defenseman in the history of the Canucks in their franchise history. And he's only played, you know, part of one season in the league. Mm -hmm. Now that's more of a comment on the Canucks inability to have successful defensemen in their history. Because if you look back 
Um, I don't know if you could say that they've ever had a true bona fide number one Norris candidate defenseman. So, uh, you know, Quinn Hughes coming in has already changed the complexion of their blue line. He's made them more competitive. Certainly, um, you know, he, he ran their top power play for most of the season that finished fourth in the league. Um, so people expected him to be good because he was drafted high in the first round, but you know, just how good he's been, uh, has been really impressive. And then close second on that list would be JT Miller, who the Canucks got in a trade with the Tampa Bay Lightning at the draft last year. And initially were criticized a lot in Vancouver for paying too much for JT Miller. They gave up a first round pick in that deal. Uh, but he came in and had a career year offensively and has, you know, found himself a home on the top line with, uh, Elias Pettersson and either Brock Besser or Tyler Toffoli, depending. And, you know, really seems like he's going to fit in well as a part of the core of this team going forward. And I know that Quinn Hughes is going to be up there in the Calder conversation with Kale McCarr. In my opinion, it should be Hughes who should win that one. But my last question, Canucks related, is going to be about how Tyler Toffoli has come in and just engage that veteran presence. We know every team, when you go into playoffs, you're going to need a veteran just calm the boys down, make sure they're ready to go every single night. Is that a guy who you really defend, depend on to really just, you know, get him going and give him confidence? Yeah, well, he's uh, certainly had a lot of success, of course, winning the Stanley Cup with the LA Kings, uh, knows what that playoff battle level is going to be like. And as much as the Canucks are a, a, a team on the rise with some young, skilled players, those guys aren't battle-tested yet. Pedersen hasn't played a playoff game. Besser hasn't played a playoff game. Hughes hasn't played a playoff game at the NHL level. So these, you know, these play-in games and, you know, potentially rounds beyond that, if the Canucks are able to beat the Minnesota Wild, are going to be hugely important for those young guys. And so it is a big benefit to have players that have experience, you know, in some of the most intense games that you'll ever play in your dressing room to kind of guide those guys through the process. And Tyler Toffoli is one of those guys who, Obviously, he only played a dozen games with the Canucks before the season was paused, and he's going to be a free agent this summer, so it remains to be seen whether he'll be here long term, but you hope anyway that he can have uh, you know, a positive impact on those players. They've got other guys, Tyler Myers, who they signed last offseason, um, has had some success in the playoffs with the Winnipeg Jets. Jay Beagle is a fourth-line guy, but he won the Stanley Cup with the Washington Capitals, so it's been a priority of the Canucks organization to surround their young guys with guys that have that experience. Yeah. Uh, so you certainly think that a guy like Tyler Toffoli, not just because he's a skilled player and goal scorer, but also because of that experience, will be able to help the Canucks going forward. Absolutely. And then the last question we asked to all the broadcasters that we have on, one or two pieces of advice for aspiring broadcasters like us, go for it. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I kind of got into it a little bit earlier, but like, don't be too proud to do anything. Like, you know, getting your foot in the door in the industry is important. And, you know, as I said, I worked in the middle of the night on Christmas Eve um, just to get my foot in the door and find a way in the broadcasting industry. So don't be too proud. Don't think that coming out of broadcast school, anything is beneath you because, you know, oh, I graduated broadcast school, so I'm ready to call games in the NHL. Like I thought I was ready to call games in the NHL when I graduated broadcast school. And now I listen back to some of the play-by-play -play I did when I started and I cringe. So, you know, it's good to be confident in yourself, but also realize that it's not going to happen overnight and you're going to have to make sacrifices and, you know, the other part of that is you have to love it because there are sacrifices you're going to make. You know, when, when things are happening normally and we're not in a pandemic, I'm away from my family for large portions of the year. I miss birthdays. I miss holidays. Um, so, so that's something you have to be prepared for that sacrifice. And you're not going to enjoy 
you know, making those sacrifices or you're not going to be able and willing to make those sacrifices if you don't love what you're doing. Absolutely. So make sure you have a genuine passion for it and that you're willing to sacrifice because, um, you know, to get to where you want to get to, you are going to have to make sacrifices and you are going to have to work very hard. It's a really good point. Very good point. I've been Dylan Pescatore, joined by Ian Nicholas, Brandon Batchelor, episode 24 of the Beyond the Whistle podcast. Thank you everyone for listening.